Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream podcast. Um, thanks for joining us on a Wednesday, a special Wednesday weekday episode. Uh, we are off this weekend, this Saturday, for the 4th of July holiday. We'll be back on Saturday, July 9th uh, with uh, Lit Manager Hillary Levi of the Gotham Group. And that's Saturday, July 9th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. But today we've got an amazing writer, TV writer, showrunner, producer, uh, whose work includes Dr. Ken, 1600 Pen, and Enlisted. He won a pair of Emmy Awards for his work on Everybody Loves Raymond and also co-created and show-ran critically acclaimed series such as Men of a Certain Age and Netflix's reboot of One Day at a Time. He's a former stand-up comedian, a fixture of the 1990s New York comedy club scene. And just yesterday, it was announced that uh, Mike's co-writing and executive producing a reboot of Who's the Boss with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano for Amazon Freebie. So I guess it's serendipitous timing for us to uh, have him on today. Welcome, Mike Royce. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thank you for having me. So it's uh, it's really great to have you. I think it's it's we've had on a number of different comedy writers, uh, but it's it's rare that we've had one who was also a stand-up comic, which I know that's especially in the past, it was not an uncommon thing for a stand-up comedian to sort of jump into uh, writing for television. Um, so can, maybe we can start at the beginning, since you're a, a first-timer on the show. Uh, can, maybe we could uh, ask you a little bit about your background. How did you get started? I know you were, again, you were a stand-up comedian in New York. And how did you work your way from stand-up comedy to uh, working on in, in television? Well, I think it all kind of came full circle in terms of I went to school. I went to Ithaca College for film. I mm -hmm. used to make films and, you know, Super 8 films with my friends and our backyards. And I was a super comedy nerd growing up. Loved, you know, the original cast of Saturday Night Live. Like I it started when I was a little young, but I basically started watching it right away. And David Letterman, his morning show and like Second City TV and all that late 70s, early 80s comedy, I just ate it all up. Um, and then, you know, I so I sort of wanted to be, I think my brain knew I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but my heart was not brave mm -hmm. enough to do it. Um, so after college, I moved to New York City just because it was, I love New York. I didn't really have a job plan. And suddenly it was like, oh, there's all these open mics and I can go on and I never wanted to do stand-up in college because I was always afraid of being a uh, bombing and being then trapped for four years with my audience which sounded like a nightmare you know walking around campus while everyone just goes remember when you sucked last year you know um but New York City is the opposite where you're just it's anonymous I'm never going to see these people again and it gave me emboldened me to like get on stage and I was terrible um but I had enough of the bug, even though it was so humiliating to bomb in those early days, that um, I, 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 I just kept doing it. You know, I went on a few times, got humiliated, took about a six month break, and then finally kind of got the momentum to start again. Then that was, uh, sorry, the, um, turn off my damn phone here. Um, the um, being in, in New York in the, you know, the late eighties was, there was like a comedy recession basically uh the the 80s was big and then right around 89 90 there was an actual recession and then a mm -hmm. um comedy went into recession also 
And people were moving to LA, a lot of those big 80s comedians, and that gave me an opportunity to kind of get my foothold. And Bill Grunfest, who ran the Comedy Cellar, gave me um, a lot of opportunities. I basically got to MC there all the time. And mm. I started getting, you know, I, I wouldn't say good, but let's say better. Um, let's say, you know, competent as a stand-up. And being a MC meant I was there many weeknights, especially from nine o'clock till two in the morning. So I, and hosting. And so I would get to know every comic because they'd all come through and I, you know, do my little MC set and then introduce everybody. I got to know everybody's act. I got to know, you know, deep knowledge of the New York comedy scene as I was becoming a better comic. So then when some of these comedians started getting as happened and still happens, you know, program opportunities, sitcom stuff, late night stuff, they're looking for writers and ones that who like who I shared a comedy sensibility with, I had some opportunities. I got a got to write on the, the Sklar Brothers uh, had a show mm -hmm. on MTV in the in nineteen ninety seven that was my first writing job, and uh, and I knew Ray. I knew Ray Romano, who became you know got fired from news radio. Thank God for my career, and then uh, uh, the next year got a sitcom called Everybody Was Raymond, and a few years after that. They had a job opening. I mean, I'm kind of compressing the story here, but Ray, Ray was writing a book and I helped him write a book hmm. about his uh, stand that, that took his stand up and made it into like essays. Um, that led to a job on Raymond in the fourth season. Um, and that's when I, my, you know, my then 10 month old daughter and wife moved out to California and that began my full on like writing career. No, that's great. And so since you have a background in stand-up comedy, uh, can you sort of discuss maybe how that background in terms of writing for stand-up, uh, obviously jokes, there's sometimes there's a sort of a through line, but it's not necessarily as narrative storytelling in terms of, you know, beginning, middle and end, although I think acts can have uh, portions of that or, you know, elements of aspects of that. But can you talk to uh, how writing comedy, stand-up comedy, has uh, helped your writing for, for television, writing sitcoms? Well, for me, it was, mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be a TV writer without my stand-up experience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hilarious, talented TV writers, comedy writers who do not need the stand-up experience. For me, it was absolutely essential because mm -hmm. I did, I actually wrote a sitcom when I got out of college, a couple of friends of mine, you know, my friend had an idea and I was sort of the main writer of it. And I mean, I'm not kidding you. And I've said this before, but like you would read that sitcom and kind of push it across the table and go, listen, it's great that you tried, you know, but I mean, let's obviously this is not for you. Like, let's try to find something that you can do. You know, it's great that you lived out your dream, but now let's move on. Let's put that in the background mm -hmm. and you can go um, be a financial analyst or something, you know, um, it just, I didn't know what I was doing even after four years of film school and writing and, and supposedly being, you know, it, 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 the rhythm of comedy. I did not understand it. I did not understand what was the page to what comes out of your mouth. And so getting on stage and thinking I had 45 minutes of stand-up material that I had written that got reduced to about 10 seconds before I started bombing mm -hmm. and then continued bombing after that made me understand it's a whole different thing from the page to the to the stage and 
Um, I learned and started to basically have those rhythms ingrained in me, I think through repetition, you know, performing, especially in New York, the greatest thing was, you know, I got on stage every single night. I never took a night off. I mean, when I got married, we went on a honeymoon for three weeks and I came back, I thought I was going to have to quit comedy because I, you know, hadn't been on stage in three weeks. It was like an emergency, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So after what ended up being 12, 13 years of stand-up comedy, I felt, I feel like it was just infused in me how to write jokes then, you know, for sitcoms and, and what I needed to learn then was story, which luckily I had a great um, education on everybody loves Raymond. Um, You know, the the kind of thing that happens less and less these days because of the short runs of series and, and multi-cam sitcoms aren't quite as big a deal. And so your tutorial that you normally would have is just less of a thing. Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, what was your fallback uh, early on if you didn't, didn't make it or did you burn the ships and and (laughs) it was this or bust? Um, I I guess it would have been production. When I went to New York, Ithaca College gave me this great list of alumni to call who like had show business, you know, people who like ran commercial houses and anybody with a show business connection in New York. And I cold called all those people. I said, can I come and just intern and watch? And I got a couple things out of it. I, you know, I I actually worked on a a Rolaids commercial Mm -hmm. in between game six and game seven of the 1986 World Series Mets Red Sox. So after that famous game six where the ball went through Buckner's legs, they Mm -hmm. filmed the Rolaid commercial in Shea Stadium with Davey Johnson, who was the Mets manager. Mm -hmm. And I was there holding up a reflector, you know, for a little while. And I had to drive around flushing, looking for baseballs for Davy Johnson to autograph for the crew. And I, I, I was hustling and doing that kind of work when I first got there. And I kind of realized in my head that this work, if mm-hmm. you're going to do it, requires all of your time. I can't, I couldn't find time to write and be a PA on mm-hmm. their way up the ladder to hopefully cameraman or something in that, something on the crew side. So I just quit looking for that stuff and I took a temp job and started doing stand-up. So I think the fallback would have been that. I also had like a near miss. I was in, you know, I grew up in Syracuse and the summer after, before I moved to New York, I applied for a job at a Syracuse uh, uh, production house. Mm-hmm. And I, I came in basically second, the guy told me, like they gave the job to somebody else. And he said, you were like the runner up. We just don't have two positions available. And if I had gotten that position, I think my whole life would be different because I probably would have stayed in Syracuse. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I don't know that I would have found the courage to then move to New York and quit like a production job right. to be a stand-up. I don't know, maybe, but who knows? Right. Um, so for the uh, for those in the chat, if you do have questions for uh, Mike, drop them in the chat and we'll get to them as soon as we can. But I do have more to uh, ask you, Mike. Specifically, a lot of writers, especially newer writers, who are sort of coming into uh, writing for television specifically, they don't necessarily understand the difference between, you know, half hour writing, half hour comedies that come and, you know, hour long, uh, mostly dramatic work and how they're sort of different. I mean, very few writers write both. I mean, there are exceptions, but, very, you know, you sort of there's different skill sets. Can you talk to a little bit about specifically what uh, writing 
comedy, right? Writing half hour, other than obviously being funny, being able to come up with jokes and gags and, and things like that. What is it about comedy writing that uh, maybe you've seen in, in other writers, in newer writers who just ne don't necessarily have that sort of understanding yet of, of what it makes, what it takes to be a comedy writer? Um, I, I think the, the main story is the main thing. Story is the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing to master. Well, no one ever masters it, really. It's the hardest thing because it's the bones of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're a stand-up, you're so used to trafficking jokes and you watch a sitcom and it seems like it's all jokes. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, oh, those are pretty easy to write. Like, you know, I write jokes. There's a bunch of jokes. I can write those jokes. And I was very, you know, when I got on Raymond, it was a real education for to realize that the room of you know uh, half of former stand-up comedians, their discussion was all about character motivations and um, what would happen next based on the um, emotional arc of the characters mm -hmm. and like and then you know the where the plot would go based on how people were feeling and and I think that was part of the success of that show was that you know Phil always Phil's motto was always like could this happen. Not, you know, so you never want to do a sitcom where it's like, well, that's ridiculous. Like, that would never happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you do want to push it as far as you can to make it funny, but it's got to be all like within the realm of, of um, believability because then you really got them because it's like, oh, this is this feels true and it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the hardest thing. You know, Andre Brower once said this thing that I don't think is his phrase, but it's, it, it's never, you know, it has, the story has to be uh, surprising but inevitable. Right. That, that, which is the hardest thing to do because sure. it's like, it has to be all logical and yet, holy shit, all that happened. You know, can we swear on this? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of eight-year-old uh, TV writers. Or well, you know, you never YouTube, who knows? Um, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, anyway, shout out to those eight-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's the, it's, it, it, and then as a comedy writer, especially with multicams, but somewhat mm -hmm. with single cams, you have to get used to jokes doing, they're also telling a story, mm -hmm. you know? So you have to, uh, avoiding bad exposition is, is so hard, you know? Avoiding like, well, here's my setup joke. So now you understand this thing's going to happen later without the audience going, oh my God, I'm so bored because I, you know, it's not exciting to hear someone just setting up information. Mm -hmm. So you know, Phil always said you have to make the setup funny so they don't even know they're being set up. And then later you're doing a payoff, but they've already laughed. So they don't even know they're just laughing because that you've got, you've hooked them, you know? Right. Um, that is an ongoing process to learn all of that stuff. And that's true about drama and comedy, you know, right. in terms of dialogue. Yeah. And in terms of like, I've been asked by a number of writers who want to write comedy but don't think that they're funny enough and i know uh in the past in when you talk when you're talking about especially multicam but just comedy in general whether it's you know raymond or you talk you mentioned news radio or one day at a time you know there's lots of comedy lots of jokes right it's one after the other and it's it's not that there's not story there but it's definitely joke centric right but with I, I don't know if it was the start of it, but it's when I started to recognize it, like uh, shows like The Office, where they can be quirky and not necessarily as joke heavy per se, meaning, you know, punchline, you know, set up punchline joke. Um, 
whereas so is there room for writers out there who may not come from a stand-up comedy background who may not have their strength in joke writing but maybe are really quirky and funny and amusing in that sense or is that still a tough challenge like when you're looking for writers for your writers rooms for example if if they're not as strong of a joke writer but maybe they're stronger in story structure or or they're really quirky and interesting and and, and set up that way is that something is there room for them in this or should they switch to dramedy or something like that <laughs> well it's certainly very situational i think mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the single camera revolution that has happened sure you know where there's almost no multicams anymore has you know it opens things up because the reason the office can be the tone of the office is because there's no audience there right the audience would not laugh at the, the play that would be the office. You'd mm. need to put in far more punchlines, you know, because that's just the way an audience driven show has to work. You know, you can certainly have drama because you can have it's like a play. So it's like when there's a dramatic play, the audience is on the edge of their seats and you can feel the tension with the audience. But if you eliminate the audience, then you're just playing to the you're just doing a movie. You know, right. that movie can be shot in a lot of different ways and you can do visual jokes and you can hold on a character's face and just let the audience take that in. Now you're laughing um, without using words that happens on multicams too with the reaction shots, but mm -hmm. it's the reaction shots coming off of a joke, you know? Um, so it's, it's the single camera thing I think is easier to make easier to think it's funny. Let's put it that way, because you don't have the the audience is a the arbiter and for better, or for worse. And the audience is not always right. You're constantly, you know, when you're doing a multi-camera sitcom, the audience going to laugh at some stupid shit, you know, and sometimes you have to throw a stupid joke in there just to kind of wake them up, you mm -hmm. know, and then maybe you cut it in editing, <laughs> you know, or a joke doesn't work that you actually believe in really hard. And then you put in a dumber joke and they laugh at that. And Sometimes you even cheat and like take the smart joke and use the stupid laugh, you know, <laughs> but the um, because you at the end of the day, you have to present the product. You know, it's, it's this little dance because the audience in the, the in the stage is experiencing a different show than the audience mm -hmm. seeing it at home. They're not at the same party that the audience is, you know, so you have to make the product for both contingents, but a single camera has the opposite problem where sometimes you can put a lot of stuff in your script and go, well, I think this is funny. And no one ever really is there to say it's not because no one's ever not laughing at it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can right. feel it with the crew. Sometimes you can feel the crew kind of being like, this is not funny. You know, <laughs> certainly the actors can feel like it's not mm -hmm. funny, but that's also a mixed blessing because the often the actors, you know, they need anybody as a human being who needs um, reinforcement. So if there's nobody there to laugh, is it funny? Maybe, I don't know, you know, uh, and you have to provide reinforcement uh, because there's not an audience there. So, um, boy, I'm really babbling, but I guess um, to, yeah, that, have I, if I answered the question, I feel like I've answered that question and four others that you didn't. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you did. Um, I do have more questions, but we do have a few from the audience I wanted to get to, because I did want to talk to you more about comedy, about your background and about, uh, being a showrunner and, and because a lot of our viewers and listeners are uh, interested in obviously 
working for on, in television. So uh, I'd love to pick your brain about that as well. Um, Marcus Aurelius. Oh, thank you, Glenn, for letting us know we have good audio and video. Uh, Marcus Aurelius says, thank you, Mike, for doing the q and I'm not familiar with sitcom writing specifically, but could you provide any advice to an older, I'm 40, writer getting into a writer's room? I have a day job at one of the studios, but nothing to do with production writing. I'm not above answering phones and getting coffee, but I also uh, have to pay bills. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, this is the, uh, regardless of your age, and I understand the older you get, the more it feels like maybe, you know, time is leaving you behind, mm -hmm. but it is the same struggle for anybody. Getting into a writer's room is the goal of a TV writer, because that is where you learn how to be a TV writer. There's certainly exceptions. I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge didn't, as far as I know, didn't have a writer's room. Maybe she did. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> auteurs, you know, there are people who, I mean, Adam, uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin, you know, famously uses uh, writer's rooms as kind of idea generating machines, mm -hmm. then he goes and writes everything himself, or completely rewrites people's drafts or whatever. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, you're talking about a staff with a showrunner. And being in that room, you start to learn the rules of, of that particular show, the rules are different everywhere. And it's, I think, you know, so so getting in the room in some way, becoming a writer's PA, becoming a writer's assistant, a script coordinator, these are all the traditional ways. They used to be better pathways to getting a job. Uh, the fracturing of television has made that a tougher road because very few shows have seasons that go beyond 10 or 13 episodes anymore. And therefore you're barely able to give script assignments to the staff that you have as a showrunner and giving them to writer's assistants becomes, you know, way more difficult. Um, uh, and, you know, you have to, it, it, it's piecing that, it's just, it's really tough to, you know, you have mouths to feed in terms of giving script assignments. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, being in a writer's room is still an invaluable experience. So I still recommend that pathway as long as you, you know, try to, well, whatever, you have to navigate it. It's a tough, tough thing to navigate. Uh, you know, other than that, it's, it's connections are everything. And it's always, it's age old advice, but it's that writing, continuing to write, always having fresh samples, uh, uh, you know, so that when you make a connection that might be able to get you to a showrunner who's reading for the room, you have a sample that is going to make, you know, uh, get you hired. And I think it's, it's very frustrating to hear you got to write a sample that cuts through the noise. I, I'm not, I don't even mean it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, like sometimes people write one sample and it's very good and that they try to use that as a continuing uh, option. But sometimes the sample itself is great, but it doesn't necessarily give you uh, the writer that you need for that particular show. So having mm -hmm. variety, I think is just very helpful. When we were uh, hiring for one day at a time, sitcoms, multi-camera sitcoms were so out of fashion, we got submitted almost no multi-cams. Hmm. And I swear the more, if people had written more multi-cams, mm -hmm. they would have had an inside lane to getting a job because that's the style of the show. Instead, we had to sort of interpret single camera hmm. things to see, well, can they write this, you know, our style? Um, so the more you can communicate to, to prospective showrunners different styles that you can write, depending on what show you're up for, it just opens up your possibilities. That's all. No, that's great. And that's great to know. I hadn't even thought about 
the you know from if you're creating a multi-cam show and working on a multi-cam show getting a multi-cam samples would be beneficial for the writer submitting yes right? yes fantastic for sure um so in terms just jumping back to what was asked in terms of the age i just wanted to to see at what point would you find out how old the writer is even like if you read their sample and like it would you not find out literally until you meet them in a zoom and even then i mean you may not necessarily know their age specifically unless it's, yeah right no it's so. it's funny that you was just you're assuming correctly now it's just that you'll meet them in a zoom That's yeah now right. the thing right. that happens right right right, right. um uh yeah normally no you know it depends i think because mm -hmm. a lot of times now when you read somebody who you like immediately you go to google mm -hmm. you know oh, right. oh gotcha. what's their twitter what's you know you're finding out more about them anyway so mm -hmm. you might find out their age or whatever more about them or or maybe not you might find out when they mm -hmm. walk into the room slash on zoom gotcha um but certainly you you, you you're doing the googling that's always the thing and, gotcha. and checking out connections people who know them you know getting mm -hmm. references. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Perfect. Uh, Colin Matthews, Mike, do you only read half hour samples for a comedy writer's room position, or are you open to one hour dramedies and dramas? I would say it would be behoove you to have a half hour, mm. um, for a half hour show. Um, it would have, you know, if it's a half hour dramedy, then maybe you'd read an hour, I guess, dramedy, but even that it, it, you know, it just, I hate to say it also, but the longer the script, the more you go <sighs> when you're like opening it up, you know? Right. So you have a limited time and you're probably only reading staffing wise. You're going to read the first 10 pages. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to keep going if you, you know, it's, it's like good news. It's like a, a very mixed bag. You could read 10 pages and it's fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, I don't need to read the rest because I think this person's great. And you don't read the rest just because you're like, good, set them up. Let's interview them. I don't need, you know. Right. And you're not finishing their script because it's already, you've won you over because you have limited time. You're trying to set up as many possibilities as possible. You want to like meet as many, you know, I did like 50 meetings for this last three years ago when I had a pilot at CBS, maybe more actually, because I want to, you know, I want to see who's out there. I want to meet everybody. I want to, you know, open myself up to the best possible staff. Um, same thing. If you read 10 pages and you hate it, that's not going to really, you know, that's going to, you're going to put it down. Right. And um, you know, sometimes when it's a really good script, I'll finish it because I love it. Cause I'm like, I actually want to mm. see how the story ends. That's mm -hmm. like, I guess you could say the highest compliment, um, but an hour long dramedy, you I'd read 10 pages and I might be like, well, I probably should keep going. You know, if I, let's say I didn't like it. It would just put me in a, I would be a little mad at the person <laughs> through no fault of their own. I'm just sure. saying, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're up for a half an hour, you should have an half an hour, at least one half hour spec right. or and, script. And going to your uh, mention of having multiple samples. Uh, I remember speaking to Dan O'Shannon who wrote for uh, Cheers and he wrote Modern Family, he wrote for a lot of different shows, comedy. And he actually got a job writing on uh, an, an hour-long drama, Jericho, because they were trying to infuse comedy. So they were looking for a comedy writer to come into their drama show to infuse a little bit of comedy from time to time, from time to time, so it didn't get too dark. So that was a situation where they brought in a comedy writer onto a drama show specifically 
for that purpose. They weren't looking for a dramedy writer. They were looking for some a comedy writer. And he obviously has the pedigree, right? But uh, that was a, a situation where, again, yeah. you know. It's funny, I think I've, and I think that's more, more common. I've experienced a little bit of the opposite with men of a certain age. Mm. It was, you know, Ray and I were the, in the room, running the room. And so it feels like a comedy room. And we had comedy mm. writers there because a couple of the people we hired right. were comedy writers. We also hired drama writers. And, and the first season, Jack Orman, who used to run ER, hmm. was like looking for something new. And he really loved the pilot that he, he, we wrote. And he reached out personally, was like, I know it doesn't seem like I'm a fit for this kind of show, but I love, you know, he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So Jack was in the Jack consultant. He was three days a week. And it was amazing because Jack never had been in a comedy room. Hmm. And Jack's sense of plotting is like incredible. And he wrote one of the best episodes of the show we ever did. And um, but at the same time, he was blown. I think he, in his mind, uh, he was getting used to a comedy room. So in a comedy room, a lot of times you start pitching complete bullshit to make yourself laugh, right, right. to make everybody else laugh. And right. you go further, you know, you pitch a lot of extreme stuff that'll never make it in the script. Mm -hmm. And Jack would be like, uh, is that, is that like, are we really, is that, are we doing that? Or is that, are we working was, now? Or are we just, yeah. Is that, are we really pitching that or is that, <laughs> and I, I wanted to make like, um, you know, green and red, like paddles, like they have in like, like a, like almost like they have in soccer. Like that's mm. a red card, it's a green card, right, right, a right. card. Like this is a real pitch. This is not a real pitch. Um, but, but anyway, it was a great combination because he, uh, he added such great, you know, insight and wisdom to the hour long thing that we were doing. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's pretty funny. So I, and that's an interesting, actually, room that would be wonderful to sort of explore a little bit in terms of having both comedy writers and our drama writers in the same room and, and how you would staff something like that, which is, you know, different, obviously, than something that's pure drama or something that's just straight up comedy. Um, right. uh, let's see here. Uh, Mark Aurelius, I know this is really basic, but I'm still confused. Could you please explain why the single cam multi-cam distinction is so important? Is that a different art form jokes land differently? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say writing a sitcom is roughly a multi-camera sitcom is like roughly like writing a play. So you think about the audience reacting to it as well as, um, well, yeah. And, and the, the staging is only on a few sets and, mm -hmm. um, and multi-camera sitcom is the more, most pure form of plot through dialogue. I always, the thing with multi-cams is the opposite of the advice that you normally get for writing. It's tell, don't show. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Characters come in the door and they start talking about stuff that happened off screen because you can't show it because mm -hmm. it's something that happened when, you know, I went to the store and this happened. We don't have a store set and you don't, you don't go and do a two line scene. You know, there are exceptions. Seinfeld, huge exception. Seinfeld was basically a single camera show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just that at the time that all the only thing that really happened were multi-camera, but you know, they shot it with an audience, but a lot of scenes they did without an audience, but generally speaking, the traditional multi-camera sitcom is characters coming in and saying things to each other and, and really playing out scenes that are longer. Um, and, and like a play, a mm -hmm. single camera sitcom is, is much more like a movie. So you can have cutaway jokes that are just visual and you write it like a movie, your interior, exterior, you know, it's still going to be limited for television reasons by budget. You know, you're still going to 
but you can go on location. You can um, have very, you know, montages are a big deal. You don't really have that many montages in multi-camera sitcoms. Mm -hmm. You uh, can literally have, you know, like, jo yeah, jokes going from scene to scene, you know, um, you do smash cuts and multicam, but you can do a lot more smash cuts if you want to. And single cam, it can almost be like a running smash cut joke if you want mm -hmm. to. So the basic thing is it's like a movie. It's like a comedy movie as opposed to a comedy play. It's right. Yeah. And I, I guess animation, adult animation, you know, uh, primetime animation, The Simpsons and all those shows would take that sort of to the next level in terms of, I guess, even shooting in space or whatever. There's the, the budget isn't really that much of a concern, I don't think, in that aspect. You're right, except that I was surprised to find out now having done a bunch of animation, though not a show that's made it to air, but I made a pilot last year. <laughs> uh -huh. And, um, you know, everything costs money. In other words, a new background, that's money. Oh, gotcha. Characters, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, different characters, that's all money. So you're still encouraged to, to keep it tight, depending gotcha. on the show. I guess, you know? yeah, that makes sense. Um Hart Hansen. Well, Hart Hansen showed up. Hey, Mike. Hart Hansen is here. What, what, what? Hart, you have better things to do. I mean, I everyone on who's listening has better things to do, but Hart especially. But especially Hart Hansen. Um, Hart Hansen, creator of Bones, and uh, you know, obviously, is, uh, you know, has better things to do than be here. But we're happy to have you, Hart. <laughs> uh, Colin Matthews, is there an age that is considered too old for a newer writer to break into a comedy room? No, but it's certain. I'm not going to say it's not harder. You know what I mean? It's it's like anything, any any job where you're starting after I don't know forty, hmm. and you know it just probably comes with the a harder path. You mm -hmm. know, um, it's it's because I think people wonder. You know, you haven't built up the history of of uh, contacts. You haven't built up the history of, I guess, doing it, depending on what your history has actually been. Um, so, you know, and I don't want to speak for everybody either. I There's ageism out there. So if there are definitely people who probably do consider it, um, who, you know, there's a bias, you know, mm -hmm. um, as a person who basically just turned 40. <laughs> um 18 years ago. Um, I understand the plight of the older writer, uh, uh, hopefully a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just something to, to try to keep working your ass off and hope that that break comes. But, you know, it's, I, yeah, I, I just, I, it shouldn't be a, should, there should be no bias. I can't say that there's not, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it should be all about your talent. Right. Given a lot of shoulds here. Right. And do you think that the age issue comes into play potentially more in comedy, which deals with current events and it deals more with tends to deal more with. Let me let me cut to the chase. Yeah. Old people aren't funny. That's that's, <laughs> that's what, you know, young people are funny. That's the bias, you know, Um so I, I'm going to guess your yes, that there is, it is more of a bias in comedy. I don't know that for a fact because mm -hmm. I'm thriving. Yes, myself. you are. <laughs> no, you I are. don't know. I don't know that for a fact, but I right. feel like that is a thing. You know, I feel like, I also feel like you're, you're allowed to get older as a director. 
than mm. you are as a writer sometimes. Gotcha. Directors, we actually wrote this into an episode of Men's from a Certain Age. I don't even know if it's true, but my feeling is that directors, you know, you're looked at as having gained experience and wisdom, mm-hmm. whereas maybe for writers, you're looked at a little bit more like you're being put out the pasture and you're not relevant anymore. Right. You know, relevancy, I think, sorry, I, I cut you off there, but I, I think know. relevancy in comedy, you know, you know, they're not handing out late night shows to, well, this is actually not even true, but, but to, you know, it's younger people, younger people are, you know, that's who is hot in comedy, generally right. speaking. So there's certainly probably more of a bias in that way, but there's yeah. room for everybody now, right? There should be, I'm saying I'm railing against the system now, the streaming and like, sure. you know, Grace and Frankie, there's a whole, the demographics of this country and the mm-hmm. world for that matter are like over 50 is a gigantic amount of people, many of whom are ruining the country. But nonetheless, they should, there's there's older people who are, are out there who don't even, you know, streaming is not ad supported now. And they should be, there should be programming that is uh, aimed at more people over 50 just because there's still not that much really. Right. Yeah. And I, I've heard from other showrunners that at least what you know in terms of what they've mentioned to me uh that the issues that they've seen older writers that have come to them uh that they've had meetings with either comes when there's an issue it comes out either in they feel that they're at a further place than they really are meaning they're not they don't, it doesn't come across like, I want to learn, I'm starting as a writer. It's like, I've had a career as something, something. I was a senior VP or I was director of communications at blah, blah, blah firm. So I don't feel like I should be a starting writer because I, and that sort of turns some showrunners off. Right. And, or because they are older, their reference point for things. So that when actors say lines, the, the ref, things that they reference are older like you're referencing older sitcoms as opposed to newer ones they're not as hip on the current trends and things like that if it matters in that particular show although nowadays you have so many period pieces and things like that that it could you know maybe their expertise in that specific era is actually Uh, beneficial right yeah that's absolutely true in that case Um, i think you're right about all of that i think there's also the hidden thing of if you're uh in your 30s maybe you don't want to hire someone in their fifties. Cause it makes you like, you're mm. like, I don't hang out with those people, you know, right. but just like anything else, if it's a bias, you need to fight against it. You yeah. know, if, if it's, we all need to be hiring people who are the best for the show that you're working on and overcoming your implicit, you know, is that the word it's your, your, you know, you have to be, um, I'm, blanking on this phrase that I should know, but you know, you, everybody has their biases and you mm-hmm. need to get outside of your stupid fucking bubble mm-hmm. of the people that you hang out with and hire a lot of people that maybe you wouldn't hang out with, but they're great professionals who are going to do a great job. Mm-hmm. You know, this is obviously a thing that's going on in Hollywood with uh, 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 race and age and, and uh, gender and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And different perspectives, right. Give you, different viewpoints absolutely story absolutely yeah makes the show better uh let's see here mark Aurelius. mike i'm curious if you find tv to be a more interesting medium to work on than features or if you've ever uh explored producing writing directing a feature well as someone who has never done anything in features i find tv more interesting 
Uh, it's, I literally, I mean, I'm writing a movie, mm -hmm. you know, very much on spec with uh, Gloria Calderon Kellett right now. Yeah. Um, so that's fun, but that's kind of my feature experience. I've punched up some features, mm -hmm. you know, I just don't know that world really. And, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable. I've certainly had success in television, so I'm happy there. Sure. And haven't felt like I need to get into features for any reason. Right. Sometimes it sounds like a nightmare, to, honestly. So that's also there. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I really don't have a lot of experience in features. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, TV obviously is a, a, a writer's medium, right? That's, uh, for sure. It's, it's know. certainly, um, when you're the showrunner, mm -hmm. you're on set, even the director is kind of looking to you for guidance, you know, um, you know, not necessarily when you're literally on set, but like just in general, you're the creative vision that everyone's getting behind. And so right. it's rewarding in that way. Right. Uh, Colin says, thank you for your advice, Mike. Um, Hart Hansen. Hey, Hart. Uh, I'm happy to steal from Mike. I loved Men of a Certain Age and would happily have worked on that show. I wonder if Mike thinks that TV is still uh, branching out or if it's contracting again. Oh, that's very interesting, hmm. Hart. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, the answer is sort of like weirdly both. And this is now I'm really going on vibes because I don't have any knowledge of the internal workings of these streaming services. And if Hart does, please call me and tell me. <laughs> but it does feel like they're all getting their bearings now mm. and not there's a little bit less like let's try anything, you know, which is let's try anything is always good for production, you know, and, and good for like writers because it's they're they're a little bit more trusting you mm -hmm. because they don't quite have you know quote unquote know what works yet mm -hmm. but as they as the streaming services start to take over and produce more stuff vertically within their siloed corporate multinational systems mm -hmm. I, I you know they're all looking to cut costs they're all they control things they control things more and I think that will lead to a contraction. And, um, you know, as they get their libraries in order, like mm -hmm. it's starting to really silo into like the studios clawing back all their content. They're probably getting a good look at what we have and what we need, as opposed to let's just get anything on there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it feels a little more like things are contracting. Maybe that's not the right word, but like things are getting more, they're getting more choosy in a way. Mm -hmm. There's also, you throw the pandemic in there and it felt like there was just a lot of stuff that got greenlit, then it got stopped, then it get, then they had to catch up with it. And it's really hard to tell where we are now in terms of what's, what they need and what's selling and what's, you know, what the, what the asks are. Mm -hmm. And what is, again, talking about um, sort of different streaming platforms and how back in the day it was Netflix and then Amazon Prime and Hulu and then every uh, studio and network has their own. And then even ancillary places uh, started creating their own. Uh, and like Amazon has Amazon Prime, but then they also have IMDb. IMDb TV hey, became hey, Amazon. Freebie. 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 Let's right. say the word. Let's right. say yeah, it's, it's switched. <laughs> Amazon Freebie. So they have Amazon Prime and Amazon Freebie, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's so many different outlets and the internet is sort of that democratizing thing i mean obviously there still needs to be the money there though there's that financial factor of they can produce it but it has to have some sort of 
revenue generation capability at some point, right? right. Uh, and I'm sure it'll re, you know hit some sort of a balance of of what is profitable and they'll stick around and the ones that don't will disappear. Uh, what but what is your take on like how many streaming services? Not exactly the number, obviously, but uh, the, the streaming services. Uh, there seems to be like a lot of pieces of the same pie now, as opposed to just the networks that had, you know, three or four pieces when Fox showed up of the big pie. Now there's a lot of different pieces. How many is too many? Like how specific do you think specificity is meaning where it's, it's, that's too tiny of a narrow of an audience for it to be profitable. I mean, this is certainly the jillion dollar question, you Mm -hmm. know, and I, as a writer, um, I'm a terrible businessman. <laughs> um, so I can just go off of, you know, take sure. my writer hat off and go like, here's my crazy theory of everything. But right. um, it does seem one thing I do know is that uh, wherever they can save money, they're going to save money. Mm. And whatever they can make money, they're going to make money. And consolidation certainly seems like it's somewhere in the future. Yeah. And what hopefully as a society slash union um, we might have to, you know, do is, uh, you know, the more merging that happens, the worse it is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if suddenly there's not, you know, th- these, these 11 streaming services turn into three, that's, you know, they're, they're going to start controlling, um, you know, pushing down wages, pushing mm-hmm. down wages, crew wages, writer wages, all of that, that's all already happening. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's going to be a big problem for, you know, to fight against. Um, There's just, they're, as you say, they have to monetize in some way and they want to make sure that they're monetizing in the most efficient way possible, Mm -hmm. which always means eliminating competition, you know? Sure. So how that's going to play out. I don't know. Apple's very big. Amazon's very big. Those places seem like they could buy half of these other places and who, who knows? Right. Uh, and hopefully um, there won't be some monster in the White House who allows it all to happen. Right. I really went big there. I really yeah. went big, big concept. Uh, you got you got to stick those in there because you got to keep people on their toes. You got to keep keep that in. They can't just disappear, right? They can't become white noise. You can't be all <laughs> right. a- Amber right. Heard, uh, Johnny Depp court cases, right? <laughs> um, Simba Dabinga says here, uh, uh, is there a... P- appetite for political thrillers i'm told that no one will touch a second amendment crime drama because it's too political even though it's told from different perspectives i I don't know i mean i've i've certainly never heard that before but that also sounds very specific Mm -hmm. i don't know what a second amendment crime drama i mean that's like a that seems like a very specific type of show right um so i don't know what what was the first part of the question again uh i guess an appetite for political thrillers I just can't, I, I mean, they seem like they're out there, but I don't know right. what the appetite is. Yeah. The thing is Simba and uh, cause Simba, I remember mentioning something similar in a previous episode. And I want to say Simba that the Google algorithm must have picked out your comment either in the chat or via, you know, the analyzation of the audio because that one got demonetized. So that's now you're on a list one. Simba. That's the only one that I did. No, I, and I put a, a, a claim in and it was fine, but I've never seen that before. And I thought, wait, we mentioned the, you know, Second Amendment, maybe that might have something to do with it. So um, if this one gets demonetized again, then we'll know that that's why. why oh that my happened. God, that's, that, that's awful. 
too much of a hot button topic even for the bots at Google. Anyway. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. That, that would be terrible. Crystal says, what was a turning point in your writing and how did it change from before and after writing your first script that got you staffed? Um, it was my turning point came when I was staffed. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough. I mean, I always, you know, I didn't have to write a lot of specs before I got hired. But on the other hand, I had to do 13 years of stand-up comedy. So, <laughs> so I, you know. I, yeah, I, I factor that in. Yeah. You know, I also basically I got the job on Raymond mm. after um, I wrote a Frasier spec. I also Ray came out to New York and did Saturday Night Live. I wrote a sketch for him that actually mm. did really well. And I think that helped, you know, show Phil. I think that I'm not just Ray's friend, but I like know what I'm doing at least a little bit. But um, and, and I wrote the book with Ray. So I, you know, different types of writing before I got on Raymond. But the first this first script I had a hand in was written with Ray and Tom Caltabiano uh, together. My first solo script for Raymond, the first season, wasn't great. And I, I didn't understand how to pitch a story. Uh, I had like a couple of ideas, but I, they, they weren't real strong. You know, the room certainly helped uh, lift me up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But finally, I got a solo script based on this idea that... Uh, 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 Marie and Frank, you know, Ray's parents suddenly find new friends and Ray, it's like a dream, except that then they come over with their new friends and it's a nightmare again. And also Ray turns out to miss the attention, even though that he got, you know, when they're at first taken up by these new friends, seems like a good Raymond premise, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I wrote a draft that like Phil, you know, gave a bunch of notes and stuff but it went through a pretty heavy rewrite. Then the table read, not great. We added like an, another character to it. And then the taping. So I just want to, the backdrop of all this is now we're late into the fourth season of Raymond. It's a, it's a hit, you know, it's been a hit. And the, one of the hallmarks of Raymond, consistency. Every episode, because I can say this because I was a fan. I had no, nothing to do with the show for three seasons. <clears throat> the first three seasons, I watched religiously and almost every episode was great. And if it wasn't great, it was at least pretty good. You know, their batting average was so high. So this taping of my first episode, not going that great, you know, it's fine, but not great. And for whatever reason, as happens in a sitcom, sometimes with an audience, sometimes you get these bus groups coming and all those people, the, the taping was going later uh, than normal. And all those people on the bus, they have a hard out. So at like whatever it was, eight o'clock, mm -hmm. 70 people in the crowd get up and leave because they have to go home wherever the bus is taking them. And so now, now I'm, this is a stand-up comedy nightmare. I'm walking the audience with my show. Like this is, you know, it's like I'm bombing basically. <laughs> and even Ray is like, yeah, thanks for taking us back to year one. Like this is what <laughs> used to happen when they started. Right. He was just joking, but I like, it was like a punch to the gut, you know? Uh, I mean, he didn't mean it that way, you know? Um, and I was super depressed after that for the rest of the season, basically, because I just felt like, God, I'm not pulling my weight here and this is terrible. And, you know, I'm probably not going to get fired because I have a connection to Ray, but that's, you know, I moved my whole family out here and now I'm just like letting everybody down and God, this sucks. And, and also I, I, you know, I went from being at what I thought I was having a lot of success at stand up. Mm -hmm. So I went from being like, Oh, I'm like really doing great to like, 
I'm new kid who sucks now. Mm. Thankfully, I absorbed enough in that first year and went through that terrible experience. <laughs> not, not that terrible. I may be exaggerating, but it was not fun. Um, the next script, I had a, a, um, a, a, a better idea. Let's put it that way. And wrote a script um, called The Author that did was a I can say a good turn ended up being a great episode hmm. and I got my confidence and you know I just had to get my legs under me but it, it took the bad experience in addition to just learning learning being in that room for a year and this is why hmm. I say it's just a crying shame why you know people writers aren't allowed to have that learning experience uh nearly as much anymore and right. that's what did it for me that's what did it you know yeah uh, and, and we were talking about fallback jobs earlier, and then you had also mentioned Phil, Phil Rosenthal from Everybody Loves Raymond. And I thought, well, Phil has a, a travel food show, right? So you, that could be your fallback, right? You could have a <laughs> right? somebody feed Mike. Yeah, yeah. I uh, my talent when it comes to food is born out of six years on Raymond, where all the only phrase I know is let Phil order. <laughs> Phil knows what he's he's in charge of the food so I uh food's not going to be my fallback fair enough fair <laughs> enough um Simba again when pitching a show pilot should an unrepped writer pitch smaller budget projects or go for the big budget swing in features I usually hear I should submit small budget projects so I guess he's wondering on in television if you happen to get a script from an unrepped writer somewhere through the chain does it matter the budget that you receive it or not? It's tough for me to say because, uh, you know, I'm not paying for it. So mm -hmm. this would be more creatively like, you know, so I'm not quite sure how the studio views those things. Um, it certainly sounds like good advice to make it a smaller budget thing. But on the other hand, you know, if they're looking for something that's, if it's a great science fiction script, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there's probably going to be a budget attached that's a little higher if it's something they want to make, I don't know, you know, just, you know, creatively speaking, I'm not sure you need to limit yourself. I mean, at the writing stage, it's like write stuff that you love that you, you know, think could be made and just do mm -hmm. the best job with it. That's just my sort of naive advice. I, I really don't have great advice, I think, in that area. Mm -hmm. um, I would listen to people smarter than me. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, Brian Stringfellow, I'm loving the industry hot takes. Uh, also, I'd love to see that Frasier spec. Um, and now talking no. about specs, you, <laughs> right? <laughs> it wasn't terrible, but you know, it's 22 years ago. Sure. <laughs> uh, and, and talking about specs, that's not something that is really read anymore. Uh, do you ever, ever read a, a spec, not an original spec pilot, but a spec episode, not of necessarily your show, because obviously that's pretty taboo right. uh, for legal reasons but do you do you ever read a spec of another show maybe as a second sample or anything like that does it help you at all here see if they can you know mimic a show's voice at all or do you just strict to strictly original samples so uh to get on my soapbox and keep it very short mm. you know this is obviously uh maybe not obviously this is a huge argumental point people mm. get very mad about Specs are not specs. Hmm. And I think you have to, so the advice is only that it's different for different showrunners. Sure. And that the prevailing notion right now is you need to write that original pilot that's going to blow everybody's 
fucking, you know, ass mm-hmm. off. And, um, and that's supposedly the secret to getting on a show. And that may very well be right. It probably is right. You know, if I read an amazing pilot by like, oh my God, who is this person who wrote this thing? Mm-hmm. I, of course, that's going to get my attention. However, I do like to read specs. Often I like to read them in addition to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, it also depends on the show that I'm doing. When I was doing One Day at a Time, as I said, I would have loved to have read a, I don't know, even like a friend spec, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that in the style of a classic multi-camera sitcom, you know, that to me would have been very helpful. On the other hand, when we were doing Men of a Certain Age, I didn't want to read specs at all because the tone of the show was so mm, right. not something that was on television. You know, it's not like, oh, it's a one hour. So read this CSI spec, you know, <laughs> right. like that's not going to work. Right. So we read a lot of movies and we mm. read a lot of different things. This is where I think Colin had a, you know, the one hour dramedy thing mm-hmm. would have loved to read a one hour dramedy as a spec for, or as a script for uh, staffing men of a certain age. Um, so it depends on the situation and it depends on the showrunner. I know Mindy Kaling tweeted, I love reading specs. You know, Gloria loves reading specs. Mm-hmm. It depends on the situation. It depends on the show. It depends on the showrunner. I think they can be useful to be hired if they, to, to you know, as an, a tool in your arsenal. Mm-hmm. If it's a show where a showrunner is going to read those things. I also just would not ignore the way that it, you know, is a good work exercise. Sure. Because... To me, it's fucking insane that the way the gate, the, the, the ticket to getting into this industry is, you know, the, the hardest thing that you can possibly do, do that first. Mm-hmm. Writing a pilot is the hardest thing. Writing a great pilot is the extra hardest thing. People, you know, get m- tons of money to do these things and they, they suck, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at, you know, I'm just, it's, it's the gold standard is to get a great pilot so you can get a series and get it on the air. And people with vast amounts of experience fall down doing it because it's very hard to create a world that people are going to love. And, you know, it's very hard. So I just think to have throw that all out the way, do that, do, I would never say don't write an original pilot. That's Mm -hmm. folly. You have to do that. That's part of your part of what people want to read almost universally. Mm -hmm. But in addition to doing that as a writer, suddenly you don't have to create a world. You don't have to, you can throw a lot of the hard work out the window, story structure, you know, you know, you're copying something Mm -hmm. and to be able to write, you know, just as an exercise, other character voices come up with a story in that world that is very, you know, you have to, it's still hard, but um, it's great for your, 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 your writing muscles. And sometimes it's great to, you know, as a sample. Right. And you had mentioned friends, for example, uh, when staffing one day at a time would have been great to read. If they have, if a writer has an amazing original pilot that you really like and you said hey you know i would love to see a spec if you have it of something does it matter if that show like for for uh fellowships it has to be a current on the air show right if a writer has maybe applied to fellowships in the past has a pilot may no longer be on the air does that matter to you would you rather have a show that you've probably seen like friends everyone's seen friends versus an up-to-date modern sitcom that maybe you haven't seen because you're running shows, right? No, right. So no, this is this is the age-old question. And right. I would never, I don't know what the rule is. Mm-hmm. When it comes to me, I would have to, it'd be a judgment call. Sometimes there's shows where I'm like, 
I know that even though I haven't watched a lot of that show, mm-hmm. I know that show. Like I could, I can read that spec, even though I'm not a genius, uh, an expert when it comes to that show. Uh, if I don't know the show at all, I mm-hmm. would probably say, well, that's not going to help. Sure. Um, and I think with the streaming, what the streaming age has sort of ushered in is these universal shows. Friends is like multi-generation, sure. you know, many generations. Same thing with the office. So mm-hmm. me, I wouldn't mind reading Again, depending on what I'm staffing, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't necessarily mind reading a, a, a Friends or, you know, in, in a certain way, the universality of it helps. Sure. But it's, I, I hate, you know, it's very case by case mm-hmm. and you just never know. You just never know. And it still has to be really good. You know, right. it, it, it like, it's not easy to write a good Friends. Mm-hmm. It may seem easy, but it's not. <laughs> right. It, it seems easy because it did such a good job of it for so long. Right. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it's not easy to write a good Raymond. It's not easy sure. to write a, a good version of any of these shows. Right. They're you know? around a long time because of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Glenn Toussaint question for Kevin. Do you get paid by the comment? I do not get paid by the comment. It's just <laughs> if, if people happen to watch the commercial at the beginning and don't hit skip, then we get a couple cents or something like that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so no, no. But thank you for writing that as a comment, thinking that maybe we get paid by the comment. I appreciate that. Um, Let's see, Simba, one more time. This guy is awesome. Yes, I agree. Mike is awesome. Uh, Thank you, Simba. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Manzano, how do you you know if tone, if a tone isn't working or clear on the page, can it be fixed with a concept teaser? Ooh, that's a lot of words there. a concept teaser. I'm not, I think I need more information, but like, if that means more setup, basically, hmm. um, I guess maybe. And also it, it would really, you know, tone is tricky and applies right. to comedy and drama. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm not quite sure how to answer that really. Um, you know, I would need, if, if they can add another comment, maybe I can address more specifically. Yeah, I mean, and tone is obviously one of those things that is, is slippery, especially, I mean, and actually you're probably very good at it with uh, men of a certain age, right? It's one of those things, comedy, drama, and we're in an era where things like that get mixed nowadays, right? Well, Much yeah, more than the, we used to. the funny thing about uh, men of a certain age was really Ray and I were writing it in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It wasn't at first for anybody, then it became for H- HBO, uh, developed it initially, they passed, and then we were able to sell it to TNT. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we were writing it, it, Ray, especially would be like, what do we tell people this? Like, what are we, what is this? Like, what do we, what do we, how do we describe this to people? And it didn't have, we were like, it is just what it is. Um, I guess you could say it's a dramedy, but we always hated that word because mm. it, I always think of dramedy as like lame comedy and lame drama in one <laughs> package. Great. Right. It, it, it always sort of con- conveys the jokes aren't that funny and the drama is not that impactful. Um, uh, obviously there are amazing dramedies out there, <laughs> so it's not an, to insult shows, it's to insult the term. Um, mm-hmm. but we preferred to say it's a drama with comedic moments, which gotcha. is such a stupid mouthful and a, a ridiculous thing to say, but that's how we like to say it because it was just the way we knew when it's, it's sort of like why they added Dan Shannon to the Jericho room. Mm-hmm. We knew writing it, we were writing a drama, but that there would be funny moments because these guys were friends and they would just try to, you know, they would talk in ways that friends talk, which is to sort of be humorous, you know, and mm-hmm. make each other laugh. And the, the, the scenes would often end in a, uh, with a, a version of a blow, a comedy blow, uh, or, a, you know, a, a drama blow, <laughs> if that's a thing. Um, 
So tone, you know, I guess tone's like the eye of the beholder. It's like, you know, when you see it, you, you just have to mm. stay consistent and try to be able to describe it. We use, we referenced Friday Night Lights a lot when we were doing that. Mm. Um, it certainly had, I think, you know, I think we had a little more humor than Friday Night Lights. Yeah. And, um, but it was, that was definitely a touchstone for us. You know, we went and visited the set to see how they shot it. At first, oh, really? we were, yeah, it was fantastic. Grayson mm. Cannon was like so nice to us. Um, and obviously later did a show with Ray on mm. it. Um, but it was very interesting. You know, at first we really thought we were going to be very documentaries, you know, shaky cam. And we did that in the pilot and it just didn't quite, wasn't quite our style. We wanted mm-hmm. less, a little less improv and a little more scripted. Mm-hmm. And we needed to kind of calm things down a little bit, but we retained a lot of the still handheld camera stuff. Um. So Adrian chimed back in, says, if the tone is too unique and you know the reader won't get it, can it be wise to create a visual or perhaps a lookbook? Stranger Things Montauk comes to mind. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, yeah. when you're when you're pitching it or selling it, it certainly helps to have like a deck. Mm-hmm. You know, you're probably going to put together some kind of episode deck or, you know, a, a little pitch deck, basically. So, right. yeah, definitely comparing the tone, being very specific with it. You know, I just pitched an animated show and we mm-hmm. called it a cross between uh, Idiocracy and Adventure Time. Oh, wow. And, you know, uh, thank you. I hope we sell it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it would make more sense when you saw the pitch, but it, like we were really going for something specific mm-hmm. and we wanted for animation to make sure people knew that the tone wasn't frenetic joke, 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 mm-hmm. but was kind of more of a silly tone and that you know felt like more like adventure time which is why we referenced that so right right, yes it's important to let people know what you're going for as as specifically as possible right no that makes sense and uh i i would be remiss if i didn't talk to you about uh what i think a lot of the audience would be very interested in is uh tips for a showrunner meeting If, if it's a newer writer coming in you're obviously impressed by their writing you like their writing or they wouldn't be sitting in front of you or on a zoom whichever the case may be at this particular stage of the pandemic um what can a writer do to impress you what sort of skills and personality types do you find interesting or like to have on your staff you know that sort of thing so i mean i obviously most of the time i'm in you know we're interviewing people for comedy mm-hmm. and um you know uh, the most important thing is to be yourself the, you know, do not try to push like being funny or whatever you're, you'll be, you know, if you've written comedy, you'll be, you'll be funny enough. It's fine. It's Mm -hmm. just a conversation, you know? Um, I certainly think it's good to try to have a, a well of, you know, a few stories about yourself. Um, You know, you want to like, you'll definitely be asked to sort of, where'd you go to school? Where, you know, Mm -hmm. how'd you, how'd you become a writer basically? So just whatever are the most interesting parts of that journey should be in your mind, ready to tell, as opposed to like long drawn out explanation of where you came from, you know? Um, I also, my, my general tip to people is to, that, that I, I'm amazed how often one particular thing is overlooked, mm. which is often writers come in and they don't say anything about the show they're interviewing for. You know, usually they've at least read the script and sure. often they've seen the pilot, you know, this is probably changing now because of the way things are and mini rooms and all that stuff. But there's some there's some element 
normally that you have of like what you're going to be working on, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's surprising. I think people sometimes think they, they might sound like they're sucking up, you know? Oh, I got you. Right. And, and, um, but you know, when people come in and they're like, Oh my God, this, I love this. And I love Mm -hmm. this pilot and I love your work and I love Mm -hmm. this and that, and this, you know, that person wants to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that maybe they have other interviews that they're going for, uh, other shows that they're up for, but they want to be, they're, they're proving, oh my God, they're going to be really passionate about working here. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's more, you know, surprisingly often people kind of give a great accounting number to themselves and they seem like great people, but they leave and they, they haven't said why they want to work on the show. Gotcha. And I want to be clear, sometimes you're interviewing for a show and you're not that big a fan of the show, but you need a job. Mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and you're going to find a way to work on that show. Even though it's not like your favorite show, mm-hmm. find something that you love, whether it's a line or a character or a scene, just something that you can go, man, Oh my God, this was, I love this. I, I laughed out loud at this joke. Holy mm-hmm. shit. You know, just something that proves that like, you're going to, you're, you're, you want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. It's important because you're just always going to choose the person who's made, made the case to like, I got to be in this room because this is the place for me. Right. Over the person who's just a great writer who like, seems like they could go anywhere. Right. And not that a writer, especially a newer writer, a staff writer level, uh, story editor level can sort of choose at what phase of the process they enter. It's usually near the end after you've already hired all your senior writers, but you know, in terms of when you start looking, trying to fill those last few spots with whatever budget you may have left, uh, does just out of curiosity, does it matter if they do the writers at the beginning seem more appealing because you're fresher in, in, in terms of the process, although you're probably not fresh. You've probably seen a ton of writers for all the different uh, levels. Or is it near the end where you're just like, they're great, it's good enough, let's just hire <laughs> them because I've seen, you know, I've read 400, you know, original pilots for these two staff writer spots. They're, I like them. And they've left an impression because they're the last one to talk to you. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I think all of the, that phenomenon can happen and mm. it's tough to game the system. You just never know. Because, sure. you know, yes, I, I certainly, oh my God, that person who just left the room is now my favorite person in the world, mm-hmm. you know? But on the other hand, if it's too late, it's too late, you know? Yeah. So uh, and also um, in my experience, you don't always have your upper level before your lower level. It, okay. really, it really depends. Certainly that's, you're, you know, you're focusing more on that, mm-hmm. I guess, until you get them in place. And, and the money, you know, tends to trickle down because you are paying those people more money mm-hmm. and then you're waiting for how much money you have left over. But because of budgets, you normally, you know, you're going to have to mix it up. Right. Um, at least again, this is in my experience, things have ch- are changing constantly and it just, nothing's universal anymore, but you have to make a mix of, of voices and budget levels mm-hmm. and points of view and, um, and talents. And so it's, it's not necessarily one before the other. Um, and, uh, and yeah, sometimes, sometimes timing is all over the place. That's really Mm -hmm. my answer. Timing is all over the place. I was just curious. I I didn't think that it was possible to game the system since they have little control over when they come in and see, I was just curious if there was a, well, and now it's, it's, I, I really, I'm, I'm so, uh, I don't want to make this too global statement, but I'm the last boomer. Okay. <laughs> I was born in 1964. 
I'm not literally the last boomer, but I'm the last year of the baby boom. I always feel like I'm getting the last year of all the shit that they got, you know? Mm. So I, I get a taste of like what the boomers got right. before they ruined everything. <laughs> but then I don't get the, you know, then the other side of it is, you know, it's like the same thing with comedy clubs. It was such a big boom in the eighties. And I, I always say I played every club when it was full once right. and it was empty clubs for five years till it came back. So the, the, that's all a long way of saying that like, being a writer now who's starting out or who's in the beginning of their career is, I think, so much harder. It might have been, it's always hard to get hired, always. Historically, show business is very hard to get a hold, you know, get a foothold in. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, it used to be at least a system, a schedule. There was pilot season. You mm -hmm. knew when the, you knew when the meetings were going to be. Right. You knew when you were fucked because you didn't get a meeting, <laughs> right. you know. It, it, there was a rhythm to it. Now it's like shows get announced and then you inquire and they're like, Oh yeah, that's that room has been over for three months. Like mm -hmm. that happened. That's the, you have to keep, have your, all this secret information. Agents don't know. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to know. And the, the only good advice now is like form the largest possible network of contacts to know about shows when they're staffing, because God damn it. It's so hard to find mm -hmm. out. It's so hard. I know people who, get their shows, you know, showrunners get their shows greenlit. And I'm like, Oh, do you need people? Cause I know mm -hmm. people. Oh no, I, I got, I got everybody already. You know, mm -hmm. like it, it's so under the radar now, so hard to find out. Right. So just gaming that particular interview system is even <laughs> harder. Right. You know, and I'm not trying to get you a deluge of people tweeting at you that they want to uh, submit, but just out of curiosity, it was announced <laughs> yeah. a couple of days ago. Who's the boss, right? Right. At what stage of the writing process are you in terms of obviously, you know, hiring a staff would come after that. But, right. you know, how soon after that do you I mean, like, at, so at what stage will you start? Yeah, we're still developing that. So Bridget Munoz so and I are still we're right, literally writing the pilot script. It's got months and months before it's greenlit into being an actual show. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're very hopeful about it. Um, but you know, that's, that's, we're not a big boy show yet. You know, it's, it's, uh, at least months away. Well, I don't want to say at least years away, but it's months away. So <laughs> the audience months, still has time know. to work on their, who's the boss original series specs <laughs> to submit to that. I gotcha. can't, that I will not be able to read. That's gotcha. right. <laughs> right. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, when we actually are putting specs. a room together is very, very, very up in the air. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. Um, Let's see here. Paul Astor Cohen says, have you ever had to change tone uh, plot points when dealing with certain streamers, such as writing a pilot for HBO Max, as opposed to Netflix or Paramount or Paramount Plus or network TV? Hmm, good question. I guess my biggest experience with that would be a pilot that I did. Uh, so the answer is mostly no, because you generally kind of get into something and it's you know, the tone is at least somewhat known. But I did a pilot for CBS in 2019 called Super Simple Love Story. It, that started out as a single camera spec that I wrote. Later, I, uh, you know, it just kind of was something I wrote for myself that I couldn't really get going. And then I sort of had an idea that maybe this would work as a How I Met Your Mother type of show. Because mm -hmm. it's a show that went back and forth in time. And How I Met Your Mother was like a sitcom, a multi-camera sitcom, but it didn't have an audience. And it was really cut like a single cam, you know, it was a, a, what they call a hybrid, you know, 
So I thought maybe I can shoot this as a hybrid. And so I rewrote it, but it didn't take a ton of rewriting. But you know, now now we're trafficking more. And okay, is that a punchline that's going to get a laugh? You know, and and making it more multicam feeling. And it was fun. And CBS didn't pick it up, uh, uh, which was a shame because it had great people in it, <laughs> uh, 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 an incredible cast. Um, but uh, uh, now I actually converted it back to a single cam. It had, it's not anywhere, but I. I think Sony at some point is going to try and, you know, we've talked about getting in other places back as a single cam, which given the time jump elements may actually be the best format for it. But it was an interesting experiment. You know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say the tone, it didn't put me, I didn't have to jump through hoops to change the tone of it, but uh, it was interesting to sort of navigate between, oh, that's going to get a laugh in a single cam. That's funny in a single cam, but not in a multi-cam. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and that we've actually had a conversation uh, with Craig Doyle uh, on uh, sitcoms, like uh, uh, multicam versus single cam. We sort of broke it down in a, in a previous episode. So if, if anyone's interested in sort of that whole process and, and the differences specifically between the two, uh, you can look up Craig Doyle on our website, scriptsandscripts.com, because yeah. awesome. we, uh, we went over a lot of that stuff. Um, Adrian Manzano's back. As a Latinx writer, I was sad to see One Day at a Time canceled. Well, I'm not Latinx writer, but I, I too was sad to see it canceled. Um, what can you uh, recommend for my Colombian family in 90s Queens sitcom? Well, that's kind of interesting. Wait a minute, um, you can't be teed, I can't be teed up this, this well. Because uh, the Gordita Chronicles just premiered about a Dominican American mm. family that moved that set in the '80s, and they moved from Miami, or sorry, moved to Miami from the Dominican Republic. Um, also, the showrunner uh, Bridget Munoz Leibowitz is uh, her mom is Colombian, uh, <laughs> so I would say check out Gordita Chronicles um, for a lot of Latinx content. It's um, fantastic show, mm -hmm. and the Latinx uh, representation is is growing although it, it seems to be at a slower pace than some of the other groups um, I, I i think it is hopefully growing but hopefully. i think the statistics last year showed it's actually it act, last year it actually went down oh well, was, that's unfortunate i mean you know one day at a time went away yeah and uh, uh hentified got canceled unfortunately mm. there were a few others hentified's amazing show you should check out hentified on netflix that's another Amazing, amazing show. One of my favorite shows. Mm -hmm. And just a shame that that got canceled. Um, and uh, um, yes, there's a, there's other stuff out there. But I think, you know, more stuff. I mean, Gloria's, Gloria calderon Kevlet has a show called With Love, which is on Amazon Prime. So I, I want to be very clear about my plugs. Gordita Chronicles on HBO right. Max. Hentified on Netflix. With Love on Amazon Prime. Um, these are all fantastic shows with huge amounts of... Um, uh, Latinx mm -hmm. people behind and in front of the camera. Is the sort of decentralization of programming, meaning, again, you'd mentioned three separate streaming services. Uh, is that affecting uh, the sort of success of some of the, in other words, if one of the streamers had a number of great latinx shows instead of one here one there one and it's easy for them to get over easier for them to get overlooked um is that something that that would help uh latinx representation if it was there was more of a centralization of 
these shows as opposed to, you know, one being dumped here. And, you know, on Amazon Prime, they spent $200 million buying the rights to like Lord of the Rings so they can do another you know, right. Lord of the Rings series and, and you know it's going to get buried right uh, potentially it's, it's much harder to to get seen I mean one day at a time uh, obviously was canceled unfortunately but you know I had a, had a good run um, but it's hard audience went, audience went up every season I want to be very clear about yeah that. no that's fantastic and that's what you want but I'm sure you were it was like a salmon going upstream right with all of the different I suppose. That, I mean, of course, they don't show you the numbers, so you don't know. But sure. No, that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, um, with the amount of yeah. money they spend in the big shows that they throw on, um, it, it's tough to get seen. Right. Whereas if you knew that, oh, Netflix has three Latinx shows that are great and they're adding another, you know, so it becomes that's a go to place. I can look for what I'm as opposed to. I don't even know where to look. It's just if I happen to see you know, uh, an ad for it or some, you know, hear a recommendation, then you can, oh, yeah. I can check it out. And then you, you forget what's, which, which uh, streamer it's on. So now I got to search for it and stuff. Like, like many, like many shows. Yeah. Right. I, I want to, uh, so I want to, I want to make a, I, I'm not the person who should be talking about sure. this sandwich. I'm going <laughs> to say it at the front and I'm going to say it again when I get done. All right. Um, but he, he, I think that, um, you know, the, Many Latinx writers talk about, you know, it's not a monolith. You know, mm-hmm. the culture is not, a, it's, it's a extremely right. uh, differentiated cultures amongst many, many, you know, spread across many, many different countries and different uh, immigration um, journeys and people who are, you know, fifth generation or first generation or recent immigrants and from different countries. It's just, it's all different. Mm-hmm. And though there's a, there's a, there's things that are shared, there's, you know, what, what we, uh, what I, I'm going to say, I, as a white guy make the constant mistake of is, you know, oh, it's Latinx stuff. It's mm-hmm. all the same, you know, and we have to get out of that mindset and understand just like anything, it's super differentiated. And, and, um, and the, but the main problem is that, you know, nobody, nobody who's not a white guy gets enough swings at the plate. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't get, you know, we get repeated chances, <laughs> you know, to fall on our faces, create different shows, you know, whiteness is seen as the norm and the default. And then everything else is like, well, that's that thing. So we're trying mm-hmm. that thing. So we have one of those things, meaning all that next show. Mm-hmm. And um, for real commitment to diversity and to making a streaming, uh, the streaming services and every other uh, uh, distribution outlet reflect how America and the world for that matter looks, you have to support these things. That means some of them might not get the numbers that Lord of the Rings gets Mm. at first or maybe ever. But if, if something is representing people who are not on television who should be you gotta you know make your peace with like not being a super rapacious white boy capitalist about it and be like squeezing every fucking dollar out Mm -hmm. of every possible show it's good to have a variety of shows that reflect america and certainly there's i'm not saying there's not efforts in that direction you know but certainly there need to be more. And mm-hmm. certainly there needs to be a greater emphasis on take your fucking algorithm and shove it up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the algorithm is not, the algorithm is just 
how you it's how you interpret the algorithm that mm-hmm. is that is important. Right. And it's it's a little bit like it reminds me of politicians who are like, well, I don't have the support to do that, so I can't do that. You have to lead. You lead, you know. So these streaming services have to lead, you know, put the programming on and give it some full support, give it all the advertising and let it not necessarily be a hit right out of the gate or for that matter, you know, not have to be your number one show ever, mm-hmm. you know, develop a stable, develop a library of things that people can go back to and watch. Maybe they missed it the first time. Maybe, you know, they didn't, maybe they heard about it in season four and suddenly they're going to start binging it in season one. You know, mm-hmm. if you, tap out before you give these shows the chance to catch on or build any kind of audience, we're going to be caught in this stupid cycle of like, yeah, we tried a lot next show. It didn't work, which is the fucking stupidest thing, you know, ever. Mm-hmm. And that goes for all, you know, types of, all types of shows trying to represent all underrepresented audiences. You know, right. they need more more. Everybody needs more support, more chances. Uh, again, I want to be clear. There's definitely a lot happening in that direction, but there just there there needs to be more. Right. No, that's great. Great statement. And I, uh, and uh, so you we've kept you longer than the hour that we've promised. It's it's. But I have writing to do, so let's just keep talking. No, I I have to go. (laughs) I do have one last question for you. It's it'll be a quick one. Glenn Hussein asks, "What specs would be a good?" Total match for your new project. Who's the boss? <laughs> uh, right. So you got to get that one in. So you're thinking ahead, right? That's yeah. 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 So I don't, I, 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 first of all, Bridget Munoz Leibowitz, she is a co showrunner, co creator, co everything. So I, I don't know what she wants to read necessarily. Multicams are great because it's a multicam. I'm, go. I'm open to read. I certainly am not going to read a Raymond. Right. That's, that's not going to happen. I'm sure you've read enough of those. I would not do that. It just, I'm going to pick it apart and just say, you know, yeah. um, probably not a good idea. I, I personally, I, I wasn't lying when I, you know, so I was reading a friend's, you know, mm. I remember 20 years ago, well, 20, you know, reading, reading staff, some, um, I think it was Corey Nickerson wrote mm. a Mary Tyler Moore spec. And if it wasn't Corey, I apologize to whoever wrote it and to Corey. Um, but it was a Mary Tyler Moore spec. And this mm. was in 2002 or something like that, you know, 2004, whatever. And it was like, oh, what a joke, you know? But right, right. They got attention, you know. Sure. Like I read, I read that, or you know, knew about it. Like people were reading it because it's like, oh, what a like novelty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something that's a classic sitcom um, that I would have watched a lot of episodes of. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to guess at that because <laughs> you don't know my history. Right. But, um, you know, great. Uh, um, yeah, I, you know, it's tough to say because I'd love to read a one day at a time or a Raymond, but I'm not going to. So don't sure. write. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, for our for this show, I certainly would read multicams, and it's, you know, I read an original multicam mm-hmm. uh, as as well if that's something. But um, I don't want to make people, you know, give people false hope about writing stuff that they're going to put a ton of labor into right. that uh, they weren't intending to write in the first place. You right. know, and if you've taught anything. Or if, if anyone has gleaned anything from this, it would be let's uh, let's have more multicams, right? More multicam samples, more multicam shows. I mean, you know, I don't know the future. Are there yeah, going to be no. more, more multicams or not? I, it feels like there's very few right now. So right, right. <laughs> I don't want to lead people down a path that ends in a dead end. You know. Yeah, but again, some of the most successful shows, right, are uh, are multicam. Uh, what was it? Uh, uh, you know, Raymond was multicam. Roseanne. Yeah. 
I mean, know, these the are all products of a bygone, I don't want to say bygone era, of an earlier era. Sure. I don't know if sure. that's going to happen again, but. Big Bang Theory uh, that just ended a couple uh, last yeah, year or the yeah. year before. So, I mean, they're still around. Right? We're, we're <laughs> all going to see if there's room for the multicam. It's right. just, wow. there's, it's not really happening on broadcast right now, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, they, these things do go like this and then yeah. like that. There was a point in the 80s, in the early 80s, where everybody literally thought comedy was over. All the top 10 shows were dramas. Right. And they're like, there's no more comedy anymore. And then a lot of, you know, cheers and um, a couple other shows started and brought back this giant right. comedy wave. Like like every uh, 10, year, 10 or 15 years, everyone says, oh, Las Vegas is done and they're, they're going away. Right. 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 No, one's, no one's gambling casinos anymore. They're going to be overtaken by other <laughs> forms of recreation or Indian casinos or whatever. But the thing there. about a multicam that I is still great mm-hmm. is that you can watch it without, it's a, you know, people are on their phones now, right? Sure. You can watch it on your, with your, you'd be in your phone a little bit because mm-hmm. the, the audience laughs. So it gives you a little break every yeah. couple of, every few seconds. And the pace is just by nature, not frenetic where you're like, holy shit, I can't miss anything, you know? Right, right. It's a relaxing thing to watch, um, but it, you know, it has to be good. It has to be good. There's a lot of cheesy, it's easy to make them cheesy. So not making them cheesy is the hardest part. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's it's great because you can jump in. It, it's easier to jump in, I think, to a sitcom. Yes, generally self-contained. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for coming on today, Mike. Uh, we're all My a little pleasure. bit smarter. It was fun. And, and Simba was right. You're awesome. So I do appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with us today, answering questions. I appreciate it. This was really great. Thank you. Um, so we're off next Saturday, this coming Saturday. We're back on July 9th with lit manager uh, Hillary Levi of the Gotham Group. Thank you again. Um, and we'll, we look forward to uh, everything you've got coming out, but specifically who's a boss because I remember that show. So thank you. And just I'm just going to say I have Men of a Certain Age is on HBO Max. Yep. Enlisted, which I ran, but Kevin B. who created is on um, Hulu. Uh, one day at a time. The first three seasons on Netflix. We're trying to get the fourth season somewhere. Right now, it's in limbo mm. for corporate reasons. Everybody Loves yeah. Raymond is on Peacock. This is the beauty of the streaming services. Is I can feel like I have uh, all these shows still going. Right. <laughs> oh, no, you do, and that's it, pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty great that that now we're in an era where you can still watch it and not have to dig up. Uh, VHS cassettes at Blockbuster somewhere and get a random episode here. And yeah, no, it's great because they can live on. And yeah, I, I have no sure. idea what the residuals like or anything like that. But some of them can be maybe, maybe uh, everybody else Raymond will have. They'll, they'll be like, hey, let's do it again, right? They did it for Roseanne, maybe. Yes, it's all great, mm-hmm. but the residuals are terrible. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Streaming residuals terrible. Right. Fair <coughs> enough. Um, so thank you, Mike. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next time.